Okay, let's finish the series, okay? But first, are you guys doing well? You okay? I hope so. Because we've reached that time of year where everybody seems to be getting sick, and no, I'm not just talking about COVID, I'm talking about colds, flu, stomach bugs, the works. All kinds of messes being spread around out there, so please be sure to wash your hands. And carry small things of hand sanitizer around with you too if you can. You know, I just want you to be well. That's my PSA for the week, thank you. But welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. I am your host, Ashley. Over the last three weeks, we've covered the horrible murder of a small, innocent six-year-old girl the day after Christmas in the year 1996. But what about the suspects? That's what we're covering today. See, today we're talking about those the police and media believe could have murdered Jean-Benet Ramsey. Let's get started. Hopefully this will be the last time I have to say it for a while, but my sources are too many to list, but I searched through about 15 pages of Google, so sources will be listed if they are quoted directly. Also, this is the last warning that if you haven't listened to the previous three episodes and you want more information on this case, I recommend you go back and do that first. But like I've said, if you like the chaos, go for it. You do you, bud. But if you do go back, just know that this episode isn't going anywhere, and I will be waiting for your return with open arms. Metaphorical open arms, because I'm not a hugger, sorry. So we're all back? We're all ready for the episode? Great. So what about these suspects? Last week, I did talk about Burke Ramsey and why people see him as a suspect. So he's not going to be talked about this week. So we may as well start with another member of the family. Jean-Benet's own mother, Patsy. Now, if you listen to the previous three episodes, you'll know where I stand on this, but here is why she was slash is still suspected. Not officially anymore, but suspected. I already covered how Jean-Benet had a bedwetting problem. I mean, she was only six years old. It happens. The theory about Patsy goes that Patsy was going through a lot by Christmas of 1996. And fair warning, this is going to bleed into another possible suspect, but it all makes sense. Don't worry. She was allegedly dealing with, you know, getting older. Her birthday was coming up. I believe she was turning 40. And a lot of people have a hard time doing that. I mean, we all get older. But some people, it's hard on. And allegedly, Patsy was taking it harder than some. If you take that and tie it in with her alleged issue of being intimate with her husband, John, and then you tie that in with it being the holidays, which is hard for a lot of us, I get it. Well, when Jean Benet wet the bed that last time, Patsy just lost her cool. Again, this is all alleged. Theoretically, she took Jean Benet to the bathroom to clean her up, and that's when she snapped. Theoretically slash allegedly, she slammed Jean Benet's head against the side of the bathtub, which cracked her skull, leaving that eight and a half inch break in her skull. 
But wouldn't the police have looked through the entire home, including the bathroom? It's extremely hard to get blood out of anything entirely. And if you hit somebody's head on the bathtub, you would imagine there would be a break right in the skin. There would be blood. I mean, it's not impossible to get out every last minuscule drop if you completely douse the bathroom in bleach, but it's really hard. I mean, wouldn't someone have found something eventually? I don't know. We also have to look at the fact that the garrote was crafted from Patsy's paint supplies. Now, these supplies could have just been out and in a convenient place for the killer slash kidnapper to use to their advantage. There was one person in particular who really suspected Patsy, though. And that was the Ramsey's own employee, their housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh. I believe it's Pugh. It's the same spelling as Florence Pugh, so I'm going with it. This whole thing between the Ramseys and their housekeeper is a lot of she said, they said. So I can't honestly tell you for certain what happened and what's the truth. But the information that I gleaned was from caselaw.findlaw.com. So here's how it goes, allegedly. According to the Ramsey's book, quote, the police asked Patsy these same questions about who might have been angry or acting strangely, and she begins to think about our cleaning lady. Linda Hoffman Pugh had called Patsy a couple of days before Christmas, very distraught and in tears. Linda said her sister, who was also her landlord, was going to evict her if she didn't come up with the past due rent. She asked Patsy if she could borrow $2,500 to cover it. Patsy had consoled Linda and agreed to lend her the money. In fact, Patsy had intended to leave the check for Linda on the kitchen counter before leaving for Michigan. Linda would let herself in the house and pick it up while we were gone for the holidays. End quote. Also, according to the book, quote, Patsy remembers that her mother, Nedra Paw, said that Linda had remarked to her at one time, quote, Jean Benet is so pretty. Aren't you afraid that someone might kidnap her? End quote. And I know, we are looking at Patsy as a suspect right now, but Linda was also one. Partly because of those alleged comments. But Linda denied making any of these comments. And Linda also released a book. And by the way, Linda wound up suing the Ramses for these statements in the book. But in Linda's book, she revealed that allegedly, this is all alleged, for legal purposes. Patsy hated having sex with John. Patsy allegedly asked Linda for advice on this subject. Linda also said that John allegedly got mad at Patsy because her cooking was bad and she was a poor homemaker. Linda also claimed that she never saw John and Patsy so much as hold hands. There was no physical contact between the two. So their marriage may not have been what everyone else believed if Linda's statements are in fact true. And the reason I'm throwing Linda in now is so we know to maybe take everybody's word within this entire episode with a grain of salt. We don't know for sure who actually said what, and people do tend to cover their butts, no matter who it may be. The truth is in all of this somewhere, but I don't think it's on the surface the way everybody wants it to be. So Linda took the stand in front of a grand jury for a grand total of eight hours. 
And during this time, she made a statement about Patsy. And the statement reads, quote, I think she had multiple personalities. She'd be in a good mood, and then she'd be cranky. She got into arguments with Jean Benet about wearing a dress or about a friend coming over. I had never seen Patsy so upset, end quote. But let's keep in mind that this is from the word of only one person and a person that had kind of a strained relationship with the Ramses. I mean, yes, she would have known the family on a more personal level than, say, the media or even some neighbors, but someone's statement is only a statement. Just keep that in mind. Now, as to why Linda was seen as a suspect as well, eh, keep in mind that this is all also circumstantial at best. Linda and her husband, Mervyn, who was a handyman, I believe, they both had a key to the house. Or she had a key to the house, anyway. But the deal is that none of them fit the description of the profile. See, it was likely that the police were looking for a white male. Okay, so that could be the husband. But also they're looking for someone who is probably a former con and someone likely between the ages of 25 to 30. Well, Linda was a woman, so she's completely out the window on that one. And she and Mervyn were both over the age of 50, nowhere near the age range. But remember the excerpt from the Ramsey's book that said Patsy agreed to loan her the money? Well, allegedly, Linda was declined when she asked for the money. Like I said, a lot of she said, they said. Of course, because they did have easy access to the Ramsey's home, police did show up at their home and had Linda write down the number $118,000, and they supposedly took prints and hair for DNA. If the whole needing money thing is true, that is a motive. But it's not the strongest motive, and remember, Linda only supposedly needed $2,500 to catch up on her rent, and all of a sudden she's demanding $118,000. But according to JeanBenetRamsey.pbworks.com, she also had the means since she had the key to the house, and she had opportunity considering she knew the family's schedule. She knew the family was going to be leaving. I mean, if that's the case, even if she did know the family's schedule, holidays are much more unpredictable schedule-wise. Meaning that if she was behind this crime, why take such a huge risk on a day where you don't actually know when the family would be in bed. I mean, yeah, she probably knew the family would be out celebrating Christmas, but she didn't know when they would be home. She didn't know when they would put the kids to bed. It doesn't make sense. And according to Linda, she was asleep in her bed while her husband Mervyn was asleep on the couch the night of the kidnapping slash murder. But for theory's sake, this is how the theory goes. Linda led Jean Benet, who trusted her, down the stairs and into the basement. She was going to keep her there in order to fake a kidnapping in order to extract money from the Ramses, since she was supposedly, allegedly, declined for that money. So in this theory, holding Jean Benet for ransom was the answer. My assumption is that, also in this theory, something went horribly awry and Jean Benet didn't make it out alive. And speaking of people who had been in semi-close proximity to the family, how about Bill McReynolds? Mr. McReynolds had been Santa Claus in the eyes of the Ramsey children. Patsy had hired him to play Santa at her Christmas parties in 95 and 96. Keep in mind that Patsy loved to throw Christmas parties. If you listen to the first episode, you already know that. 
So how did Santa, of all people, become a suspect? The rumor was that he paid a little too much attention to Jean Benet. Not children in general, just Jean Benet. He had so much as set up a secret visit from Santa on Christmas. See, he had written a card to Jean Benet saying, quote, You will receive a special gift after Christmas, end quote. And this, of course, seemed suspicious to a lot of people. In June of 1997, the Denver Post put out an article featuring people who had known Jean Benet during her life, and these people gave their account of what she was like. Mr. McReynolds was interviewed among these people. And according to Bustle.com, Mr. McReynolds told the Denver Post that when he met her in 95, he was, quote, struck by her smile, end quote. Her, quote, pensive, almost retiring demeanor, end quote, and her, quote, unquote, angelic glow. People saw this as strange considering he really only interacted with her on two occasions. At both parties, Jean Benet, being a sweet little six-year-old girl full of innocence and wonder, gave Bill, Mr. McReynolds, this little vial thing filled up with glitter. And she called this glitter her stardust. Bill later had to go under the knife for heart surgery, and he is quoted as saying, quote, The stardust was all I took with me for good luck when I had heart surgery last summer. Her murder was harder on me than my operation. She made a profound change in me. I felt very close to that little girl. I don't really have other children that I have this special relationship with, not even my own children or my grandchildren. When I die, I'm going to be cremated. I've asked my wife to mix the stardust Jean Benet gave me with my ashes. We're going to go up behind the cabin here and have it blow away in the wind. End quote. And you guys know I love to play devil's advocate. But even I have to admit, this behavior does feel kind of strange. A grown man having what he called a special relationship with a small girl. Yeah, it's weird. But weird doesn't always mean perverse or malicious. Police did question him, but it's most likely because he had been in the Ramsey's home and had had direct interaction with Jean Benet not long before her murder. In a TV interview, Mr. McReynolds stated, quote, all children are special to Santa, end quote. And, quote, she just happened to be extra special to me. She was a very thoughtful, very caring little girl, and she actually gave Santa a present. You can imagine how rare that is, end quote. Bill and his wife Janet, of course, both denied any involvement in the crime. Janet even said so much as, quote, they felt very sensitive to the horror, end quote, because of the horror that they themselves had experienced with their own baby. According to Associated Press, on December 26, 1974, 22 years to the day before Jean Benet's murder, the McReynolds' nine-year-old daughter had been kidnapped. Their daughter's friend had also been kidnapped alongside her, and their daughter witnessed her friend being sexually assaulted during this kidnapping. No one had ever been arrested for that kidnapping either. According to CNN, Janet had written a play with some parallels to the 96 crime. There's a girl in this play that was molested and murdered in her own basement. So things really aren't looking too great for the McReynolds family. But while this tidbit of information does feel a little too coincidental for comfort, Janet's play had actually been based on another crime 
of a 16-year-old girl from Indianapolis who had been molested and tortured before her body was left in a basement. And before anyone asks, Bill and Janet were both cleared of DNA. Now, Bill did eventually pass away. I don't know if they mixed the stardust with his ashes and sprinkled them or not, but that was what he wanted. And before we totally leave the bubble of the Ramsey's home, I guess it's time to touch on John. Detective Linda Arndt felt as though John knew too much. If you want more information on John discovering his daughter, go back and listen to the first episode. But Detective Arndt found it strange that intuition alone led Mr. Ramsey to a pretty unused area of the home. In 1999, Detective Arndt told ABC News how she found it strange that they let the ransom deadline of 10 a.m. come and go without a word. Remember, I did say that John was confused as to whether 10 a.m. meant the 26th or the 27th. And the way it was worded, and at the time it was left, could honestly be confusing. Because it says 10 a.m. tomorrow. Did that mean the 26th or the 27th? Who knows? And the rest of what made John look suspicious is in the other episodes. But John's response to this and the allegations of possible sexual abuse circulating about went like this. Quote, A person doesn't go throughout their lives as a normal human being. One night turn into a monster, slaughter their daughter, go to bed, and get up and act normal from then on. That doesn't happen. End quote. But now let's move on to the outside of the home. And I promise I will actually be touching on a couple of human monsters, but not right now. Next up is Michael Helgoth. Michael was an electrician who worked in a salvage yard nearby. And remember how I said the Ramseys hired private investigators? No? Well, they hire private investigators. One of them was Ollie Gray, and Ollie suspects Michael Helgoth of the murder, and he said as much to InTouch magazine. Another person InTouch interviewed was one John Kennedy, who used to work with Michael, and he told InTouch pretty much the same thing. Kennedy said, quote, There was a tape recording made by Helgoth, and in it, he said he killed Jean Benet, end quote. Kennedy's suspicions allegedly began roughly one month before the murder. Helgoth allegedly told him that, quote, he and a partner were going to make a great deal and they each will bring in around $50,000 or $60,000, end quote. Kennedy also told in touch, quote, I will never forget they were walking toward his house and he said, I wonder what it would be like to crack a human skull. I was amazed. I thought it was a very odd thing to say, end quote. Michael was only 26 years old at the time of the murder, which does fit the profile. He was also white, but he had no criminal record or any history of violence, legally speaking anyway. What I mean is, if he did have a history of violence, which it doesn't seem like he did, but if he did, it was never documented. Michael had served 13 months in the army and was doing drugs pretty heavily and was depressed near the end of his life. Yes, Michael did pass away. On Valentine's Day of 1997, at the age of 26, Michael apparently took his own life. His death was only two days after a press conference announcing that the Boulder DA was zeroing in on a new suspect. Some believe his suicide was a result of feeling cornered by police. 
personally, I don't agree. Michael was cleared of DNA, by the way, and when we look more into his life, we can see some pretty big things that fueled his depression that led to his suicide not related to the Jean Benet case. He and his girlfriend had recently broken up for one. His baby sister, who had been diagnosed with cancer, well, her prognosis was pretty bad. She passed away the following year at 21 years old. And remember, Michael was into drugs. And drugs, of course, don't make you happier. Kennedy doesn't believe that Michael actually took his own life, though. He believes that Michael was killed by an accomplice. There was a gun supposedly found at the scene of Michael's death. The gun was on the right side of Michael's body, but the bullet hole allegedly went from left to right. Which means that the gun should have been on the left side. This is what Kennedy says anyway. And I'm not sure we should take Kennedy's word to heart either. For one, anyone want to guess who has a criminal record? You got it. Kennedy. And not just any record either. No, no. According to JeanBenetRamsey.ShoutWiki.com, John Kennedy is a convicted sex offender. On October 25th of the year 2000, Kennedy was arrested in connection with a B&E. He told deputies that the BPD detective commander, Joe Pell, gave him permission to go into this specific home for the sake of investigating the Ramsey case. This home was owned by Michael Helgoth's family. Pell, of course, denied all of this because it's not true. So why did Kennedy break into a home owned by Michael Helgoth's family? Well, he said, quote, he feared evidence would be lost because the house was supposed to be demolished, end quote. Kennedy was suspected of kicking in the back door. By the way, if he was given permission, he would have had a key. He was also accused of taking three, quote, drafting quality drawings, end quote, a $54,000 check, which I don't think has anything to do with the little girl's murder, and some legal papers, which included a deed of trust. Here's the kicker, though. Diamond jewelry, watches, and even some money, which I assume is in cash, they were left untouched. In all sincerity, Kennedy's actions seem much more suspicious than Michael's. And I'm not saying he killed Jean Benet either, but what I am saying is that his actions were definitely fishy. Everything against Michael is from the word of pretty much just one person. Michael actually seemed like a pretty stand-up guy outside of this one person's word, but I mean, I could be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. But that's just my opinion. That's where I stand on the matter. Next up is an actual bad person, Gary Oliva. Oliva? Oliva? I don't know. I'm not respecting this person. But anybody who has that last name, I'm so sorry for mispronouncing it. See, this guy was a sex offender in Boulder who was out on the loose when Jean Benet was murdered. And Oliva was 32 at the time. Yes, it is older than 30, but not by much. So he's not too far out of the range of the profile. This pedo had been in and out of the area quite frequently at the time of her death. And in 2000, police caught him on drug charges. Now, they allegedly found a magazine cutout of Jean Benet in his bag or backpack or whatever when he was arrested. Of course, it's weird, but that's not any actual evidence. So he wasn't held for long on the drug charges, but police kept him in mind as a suspect because they thought that was pretty weird, right? According to acandyrose.com, 
This passage from the article says, quote, a man who showed up at a memorial service for Jean Benet a year after her death. The man has a criminal history, including the sexual assault of a seven-year-old girl in Oregon, Gray said. Around the time of the murder, he was getting food and picking up mail at a church near the Ramsey home. When arrested on an unrelated charge in December, officials found a stun gun and a poem about Jean Benet in his backpack. Gray said the Boulder police may be conducting DNA analysis on the man. End quote. Okay, already convicted for sexually assaulting a seven-year-old. Not too far from Jean Benet's age, is it? Also had opportunity. Delivering mail to a nearby church. Yeah, I mean, this guy looks pretty good for it. And it gets even better. He eventually even confessed to killing Jean Benet. Oliva's high school friend, Michael Vale, went to police accusing Oliva. Vale told police that shortly after the murder, Oliva called him completely distraught and confessing to having, quote, hurt a little girl, end quote. Vale told In Touch magazine in 2016 that he was, quote, particularly unsettled by how the knots used to fashion the garrote that strangled her were similar to those used in an incident where Oliva attempted to choke his mom with a telephone cord, end quote. According to APNews.com, on January 12, 2019, in an article by Valerie Richardson, police dismissed Oliva's confession to the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey. However, Oliva was sentenced to a decade in prison for possessing child pornography. The BPD wound up releasing a statement. It said, quote, the Boulder Police Department is aware of Gary Oliva and has investigated his potential involvement in this case, including several previous confessions. The department routinely receives information on this investigation. Information provided to the police department is reviewed along with the many tips and theories we receive, end quote. Oliva had also written letters to Michael Vale, and in one he wrote, he said, quote, I never loved anyone like I did Jean Benet, and yet I let her slip, and her head bashed in half, and I watched her die. It was an accident. Please believe me, she was not like the other kids, end quote. I mean, this quote is according to the Daily Mail, which is not the most reliable source, but there it is. Disgusting. That is an absolutely disgusting human being. Also, did they test DNA? I would really like to know especially once they get the six samples separated into six separate samples of DNA. I would really like to know if they've tested his against that, but either way, he's a disgusting pervert. And the last one I'm covering today is someone who no longer identifies with the sex on their birth certificate. I will be using their previous name because that was the name used at the time of the accusation slash confession. This is not in order to disrespect anyone in the trans community. I want to make that very clear. I would never intentionally disrespect anyone, except maybe serial killers and pedophiles, which, by the way, this freak is a pedophile. I say freak because they're a pedophile, okay? But my use of their old name isn't out of disrespect to any community anywhere. It's just to keep up with a timeline. But now that that is established, let's go back to 2006. Former teacher John Mark Carr came out of the woodwork to confess to the murder of Jean Benet. He went into some really graphic sexual detail about this crime as well. 
I mean, Carr is just walking scum. Let's just be honest. See, here's the deal. Carr was caught and arrested for possessing child pornography in the United States back in 2001. Carr decided that running away was their best bet, so Carr decided to go to England for about five years and then moved on to Thailand, I'm sure, with other stops in between. Out of nowhere, University of Colorado Boulder professor Michael Tracy got an email. Side note, there is always one name that pops up in every case really frequently in an investigation. I mean, the Jack the Ripper one had the name John. And in this one, we have Michael. But please don't take a shot. I'm not responsible for your alcohol poisoning, okay? But Michael Tracy was making a documentary on this case, on the case of Jean Benet. And Carr somehow managed to catch wind of it all the way across the world. It all probably seemed pretty innocent at first to Michael, but eventually the emails from Carr started to reveal a darker side, a more sinister side, if you will. Carr started to show some sexual fascination with Jean Benet, and Michael Tracy did the right thing and reported Carr to police. Well, police decided that, um, they were going to get in touch with Bangkok, and he was arrested there. He was extradited back to the States to be questioned. And according to allthatsinteresting.com, Carr was extradited via first class where he drank a lot of champagne. You're telling me innocent law-abiding citizens don't get first class treatment, but pedophiles do? Do better. But with the interrogation came DNA testing, and this testing did actually clear Carr of involvement. I think this was a severely mentally disturbed and perverse individual who wanted information to entertain more perverse and disturbing thoughts in their own head. But that's just me. What do I know? Carr did confess, though. And he allegedly wrote diary entries about the crime itself. He even wrote of strangling Jean Benet in a quote-unquote love game with a child that had gone wrong. What I'm about to read sickens me, but I'm going to read it anyway. One excerpt reads, quote, Close your pretty eyes, sweetheart. Daxus loves you so much, end quote. Yeah, Carr was calling himself Daxus at that point for some reason. I, I don't know, and I'm not reading the rest of this because it's even more sickening the more you add to it. I can't. I just can't. Now, police did investigate Carr thoroughly, though. And Carr's ex-wife, Lara, even gave photographs to the police from Christmas of 1996, which proved that they were nowhere near the crime. They had spent that Christmas in Georgia. But Carr is still a very disgusting excuse for a human being. According to Associated Press, Carr married a 13-year-old girl when he was 19 years old after telling her to lie about her age. Then Carr married a second girl who was only 16 at the time, this is according to documents obtained by ABC News. Carr and the second wife had three children together. I don't know if the second wife is Laura or not. I would assume so, but I'm not quite sure. She may have been his third wife. I don't know. But it sounds like it might be Laura because this wife took out a restraining order against him to keep him from seeing their kids after the child pornography charges. And the year after Jean Benet's murder, Carr was accused of murdering a 12-year-old girl named Georgia Lee Moses out in California. After fleeing the country, there was a resume with a photo that looks an awful lot like Carr posted on the site jobrteacher.com. 
The resume said that he traveled the globe working as a teacher for young children. Gross. Carr had been a private English teacher and a caregiver in Germany in the Netherlands. Gross. Carr worked at a school in Honduras. Gross. And eventually, Carr landed a job at Bangkok Christian College in Thailand. I mean, college is, you know, older, maybe out of Carr's age range here, but still gross. This resume also says he worked as a nanny, which included bathing, feeding, and tutoring children, but primarily bathing? God, please no. And like I said earlier, John Mark Carr is no more. Carr is now Alexis Valoran Reich. Valoran? Valoran? I don't know. She now calls herself an advocate for sexual abuse survivors, especially kids. Hold on to your hats, people, because it gets worse. She advocates for forced sterilization in convicted child rapists. And if this was coming from anyone else, I would be like, hey, stand by your beliefs. But Reich has done so much damage. I don't support anything that comes out of her mouth. Okay, thank you. You can change your name, but you can't change what you've done. In the same year of the confession, in 2006, Reich claims to have had an orchiectomy, which is the removal of one or both testicles in order to change her life. This is on her website, supposedly, and Reich said that it completely killed her sex drive and ensured that, quote, sex thoughts and fantasies don't exist, which are the driving forces behind an eventual sex act in real life, end quote. I mean, you know, cool, I'm glad that this was done, if this was done, good on you knowing that you're a monster and you need to fix that, but the damage has already been done to the good Lord knows how many people, how many lives have already been destroyed. You can't take that back. This should have been done before anyone got hurt, but you contributed to such a disgusting and harmful industry as well. Child pornography. I try to sympathize the best I can with people, right? I try to play devil's advocate and try to see things from every angle, but this is one angle I do not, I will not sympathize with. I even try to sympathize with people who became serial killers with with their childhood. I don't sympathize with their monstrous behavior. I don't sympathize with their killing, but the horrible things that some of these people went through, I'm sorry they went through it. But that doesn't change the fact that you are still a monster, you know? But people that hurt people, the adult people that know exactly what they're doing, they don't get my sympathy. In 2007, Reich was arrested for assaulting her father. She pleaded no contest and was made to take anger management classes. Again, good on you admitting that you did wrong, but you still did wrong. And later in 2007, Reich was investigated for allegedly playing a role in a sex cult involving teen girls. Ah, yep, there we have it. Mm -hmm. In 2010, the sex cult involvement came up again when Reich was accused of threatening Samantha Spiegel. Now, who's Samantha Spiegel, you ask? Cars ex-fiance. I say Carr because Reich was still going by Carr when they got engaged, I do believe. Samantha came forward about being made by her fiance to recruit these girls for this cult. Which I guess further proves that if the orchiectomy did indeed happen, monsters are made in the heart, not your sex organs.
And there we have it. We are done with the deep dive. Maybe one day we'll have some answers about who actually killed Jean Benet, but one thing we did learn from this case is that there are some absolutely disgusting people who will exploit the death of an innocent child for fame and to feed their own perverse thoughts. Stay safe this week, guys. Go do your own research and see what information you can come up with. And as always, don't get haunted. I will not see you guys next week, or for a few weeks for that matter, because I'm going on vacation, but... Be sure to follow Crime and Theory on Spotify so you know exactly when the new episodes come out. Okay, bye.